So now I'd like to introduce our topic for today, cultivating regulation and resilience amid ongoing uncertainties and inequities. Session two of our SHIELD Mental Health series. So this is the second of nine sessions covering multiple topics on supporting mental health for all students and it'll extend through February, 2022. Please visit our website and registration page for information about future sessions. Our learning objectives for today so we're gonna apply knowledge of William Bridges transition model to understand the emotional state and behaviors in children and adults associated with chronic uncertainty, identify one method to strengthen regulation and resilience in students and adults, discuss three strategies for fostering connection, belonging and achievement for students and adults, define equity and what it may look like in your school environment, and identify one to two initial steps to take toward a more equitable experience for students and staff. So I would finally like to introduce our speakers we have today. We have Courtney Tucker, Associate Director for Business and Partnership Development at the Bridge for Resilient Youth and Transition Program, and Paul Hyrie Dermott, the Director for Bridge for Resilient Youth and Transition. Thank you and welcome to you both. And I'd like to turn it over to Courtney. All right, welcome everyone. Um, it's a pleasure. I'm going to attempt to share my screen and I'm giving myself grace because you know sometimes things go as we want and sometimes they don't. Um, and we go along with what they are. I want to start off by saying, you know, thank you all for being here. A friend of mine yesterday sent a text and she's like a group to our group chat. like, I have a challenge for all of you all. And we're like, okay, what's the challenge? No one said that with enthusiasm. And she's like, let's just get through the month of October. <laughs> and we all, and that just, everyone's like, yeah, we can get, we can get with that. So it's a lot going on. Um, and a lot of people are like, this, 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 this feels like a lot. And there's a lot of uncertainty and trying to figure out, I'm, some people are like, I can literally only take it day by day, right? Um, and just the midst of everything that's happening and how I can deal with it and what I'm using to deal with it. And so as said, we're going to share everything at the end of the presentation. Feel free to dump things in the chat if you have questions or you have concerns. Um, I'm going to look to be you shield to read those out to me so that I can make sure, just speak up and interrupt me so I can make sure that we address them. And so one of the things that I'm going to share with you is we talked about William Bridges. And William Bridges talks about change and transition. And Bridges has this thing. He says, you know what? We have to go through we have to go through stages to actually transition and deal with the change. He says change happens fast. It's external, most of the time it's outside of our control. But how we deal with it is the transition piece, right? And that takes a long time. It's a greater locus of control. And transition is even harder when change continues to happen, right? But he says there, there are three phases within transition. He says there's endings, so something ends. Something has to end. And he said, there's this neutral zone, I call it unknown territory, where you have to sit in it, where you don't know what is coming or what's next. And then there's the new beginnings. Now, when we think about this, a lot of times I tell people, it's really hard to sit in that neutral zone, right? Where you don't know what's the new beginning, but you definitely know something has ended. And if we don't sit in that neutral zone, then we just continue to long for and go back to what's ended. I don't know about you all, in my, I would say in my younger years, you know, I had relationships I knew needed to end, but the idea of me being by myself, I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. So I ended up back in the relationship and it lasted months longer than it should have. 
And so just recognizing that we have to sit in this disorienting place before we can even get to a place to envision a new beginning. And it's almost like we also have to sit with the grief that something has ended, right? But the thing that we're coming up upon as we think about these COVID times and we think about where we are is, look, I tell anyone, we are chronically holding the unknown right now. We don't know where the new beginning is, right? And if you're chronically holding, it's easy for us to get to a place where we're like, wait, how do I have hope? How do I have faith that we're going somewhere? Because I, I can't see what's starting. I just know stuff keeps ending and I'm just here, right? And so it's a place that you begin to see the rise of people feeling disoriented. We begin to be frustrated. Um, I don't know. Some people say, look, we've been in this unknown territory when we're chronically holding the unknown. Some people say, I just snapped and I didn't have a reason to snap. I'm confused. Like you, you don't have the patience is gone. There's a lot of confusion. You're like, I can't make out my head from my tail. Right. And so we're chronically. And so we're seeing people holding it and you all in the nursing, you know, what is that doing when people are holding that in their bodies? That means we're seeing people more tense. Right. And so one of the things I want you all to think about is what have you noticed? You know, when you think about this, you can unmute, you can share. What have you noticed about others and yourself in this chronic holding of the unknown? Linda says, I'm crabby. <laughs> yes, others. She said, I just react to stuff. I'm no longer thoughtful about a respond. I'm just reacting, right? Karen's like, it's depressing. Like, I, I, it's hard to have hope. Irritable. Yes. Like, these are things that happen when you're chronically holding the unknown. And I'm going to show you all, here's what we say it can look like. You all mentioned some of these. But I just want you to look at what's here. And it's like, when we're holding, being confused, oriented, frustrated, skeptical, and apathetic, here are some things that have happened. People are tired. And they're like, wait, I'm just tired. I'm out of sorts, constantly feeling behind. I'm motivated. You lay still for a minute and you're like, I'm going to be attuned and mindful and check into my body. Then all of a sudden you're like, everything's sore and tight. Right? Struggling struggling with tension. And some people say disassociating. You can be talking to someone and you're like, wait, wait, I don't even remember what you said. Right? And then recognizing the other thing, I don't know how many y'all, you get, you go to have a conversation and you're trying to pull up thoughts and it's like your brain just is completely empty, right? You're, you're getting the brain fog, right? And so recognizing as we hold this, this is not just what's happening to us, but it's happening to other people and it's happening at different intensities, right? So how is it happening? It's because we're chronically holding this unknown. Right. And one of the things I want to say is when we chronically hold the unknown, we begin to see, depending on where we started, if we think about experiences and that everyone was at a different place when all of this started, some people were thriving, some people were struggling, some people were already in crisis mode. But one thing to recognize is this chronic holding of the unknown, it decreases or has decreased how people are able to present or who they present and how in the world. Right. And so for some of us, if we were already struggling, you're like, I'm in crisis now. And some people imagine constantly being in crisis. The only thing you can do is react. 
because you're always putting something out. There's no intentional. Somebody's like, what's your goals? What's your dreams? And you're like, wait, I just want to survive today. Let's not talk about goals and dreams. <laughs> right. And there's some people that are like, I got the pace and I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to keep things turning over, but it's hard and struggling. And so recognizing that everyone who comes to us is somewhere on this spectrum, somewhere between thriving and crisis. And, and we have to be attuned to that and really think about now, what does that mean if they're coming to me? And so, and they're seeing these things, how do I even interact with them, right? I tell anyone, when someone's not in, in crisis or struggling mode, it's hard to reason with them. It's hard to get them to think. They're like, I, 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 they're like, and you're like, well, what is the first step you can take? And they just look at you with a blank stare, like, I, I just, I don't know, right? But that's because of where they are. Um, one of the things I want to say is I took these quotes because it really talks about where we are again, right? And the saying, like, with this chronic holding of the unknown, someone said, you're not lazy, you're not unmotivated or stuck. You've just been living in survival mode for a long time. You're exhausted. And how can we begin to recognize that there's a difference when you're constantly in this mode or this place, right? Someone else said, you know what? We're entering this new school year and everyone, I'm concerned because people are still stressed and exhausted right now, right? And they're not feeling like there's been a period of rest and recovery and the other thing a lot of us are holding is like, look, we haven't even gotten to winter where time changes and it's dark and automatically we have seasonal shifts and moves. So if we're already seeing this right now, what are we going to see later? And then another thing, this is like, look, as someone else said, look, you know, the only thing I can say right now is me in the school, me doing my job right now feels like I'm flying into a hurricane and I'm saying, okay, everyone be safe. And I'm just handing out cups of soda, <laughs> right? And another thing that I keep hearing is that sometimes self-care is being weaponized. Instead of acknowledging that the system needs to do something different, they're telling people you're not taking good care of yourself. And if you took better care of yourself, you would be more productive. So how do we not weaponize that and say self-care should just be about how are you loving yourself and doing things that make you feel good? So how do we become the mouthpiece for that? And so with that, I'm saying like, what do we do when our buckets run over? How do we support the healing and reflection for ourselves, our students, our families, and our colleagues. The number one thing that we can do for anybody is help them be aware, right? I tell anyone, you can't change what you're not aware of. So how do we begin to get them to a place of awareness, of even acknowledging that the bucket is full, right? And I think sometimes within our culture, we've normalized the idea of, you know what, you're supposed to be doing a lot. You gotta grind, you gotta do more. Right. And I, I think about telling where my friends used to be like, we're going to grind hard and we're going to grind pretty, grind hard, grind pretty. And not recognizing that grind lifestyle of always doing, doing, doing and jumping from one thing to the next. That wasn't good for our overall health or wellness. And so then we wonder why we got high blood pressure. Why are we struggling to sleep? 
wait, maybe our lifestyle needs to change. But until someone brought that awareness to us, the idea of grinding was normal and even validating. And so our jobs has to be, how do we open up space and allow reflection to say, wait, is this working for me? And if this isn't working for me, what do I need to do differently? Or what can I do differently? And if I'm not willing to do nothing differently, why? What is the story or narrative we're telling ourselves? One of the things that we're, we're proponents for right now is saying, you know what? If we wanna heal, we actually have to return, right? And a lot of people would say, wait, that feels, Sorry about that. Can you all still see my screen? Yes. Okay. So one of the things that that does is when we say that healing is in the return, what we're saying is healing is it, it comes about and is in a place where you return to the essence of who you are and what makes you special and what made you feel good. Right. And so when you hear, we heard Karen's story and she talked about her healing was her in recognizing who she was, what was important for her, finding out what drove her. Right. And so healing isn't returning to a place where everything's perfect. A lot of people be like, if things would just go back to normal and the way they were, I would be okay. Right. And some of us need to acknowledge for some people especially marginalized populations. And even for some of us that might not come from those groups, normal wasn't okay. And so how do we recognize that healing is the return to the place where, you know what? We can recognize the imperfections, we can see them and we can still love on ourselves. Healing is the return to the appreciation of just who we are, letting go of the judgment letting go of fixed ideas and just embracing, look, this is me living into self-compassion. So healing is in the return to ourselves and acknowledging what we need and recognizing that that need, it's important that that need gets met. If my body is tense, it's important that I stretch. If I've been looking at the computer all day, it's important that I get up and take a break and move my legs and walk around. And it's okay for me to meet that need and not be constantly on responding to email. So healing is in the return to ourselves. And so in that, as we recognize healing is in the return, I just wanna set the context that for a lot of people, especially in the context of COVID, healing is gonna be hard. Because if we think about it this way, COVID has been a collective trauma moment, right? And I'm calling it trauma because it's overwhelmed a lot of people's existing coping skills. It's caused a lot of grief. And that grief isn't just limited to the people that have been lost, it's, limit, it's the identities, it's the routines, it's the ways of being. It's the financings. It's a lot that's been lost. And so one of the things in this collective trauma moment is we can't say, you know what, what's going to happen in this moment? Like, are the effects of this going to be short or long term? We don't know. 
And I think 10 years from now, we're still going to be figuring out what was the effects of this, right? And how did it reshape people's relationships to themselves and their body, to themselves and their mind? You know, how is it having an effect? And I just want to share one of the things I tell anyone is like, where are kids? And you all are on the ground. So you're probably like, this doesn't surprise me. Where are kids right now? You know, a study said, you know, hospital visits increased, ED visits for mental health up. One in four kids are saying they've considered suicide. Most people isolated and disengaged. And these are the kids. I tell them, you know, if these are kids, can you imagine? I didn't pull the data. What's happening with adults? Right? And so as we're anticipating the return, as people are coming into our offices and interacting with us, I think we have to remember and think about where are they in their brain? And so when I think about where are people in their brain, right? What you're going to see are two brain scans. One is when there's optimal functioning. It lights up. The top part of the brain gives us a lot. The reasoning and reflecting portion gives us a lot. When it's stressed and depressed, there's not that much up there. There's not that much to connect with. And that's why there are a lot of times people are like, you know, when people feel depressed, they're like, you should be connected with people. And they're like, I don't want to look at the part of the, the connecting part, the part of their brain that wants to relate to others. People is shut off. So it does feel forced. And it's also very beneficial when it can happen. Well, this is taken from Dr. Bruce Perry. And just to remember, stress in and of itself, it's not bad. When we can make it predictable and it's moderate and it's controllable, it begins to build resilience. And that's what we want to begin to do. We want to build resilience, but we have to take the stress and make it predictable, moderate, and controllable. I use this example of, you know, I played soccer. And so my soccer coach would, you know, we would do trails, we would do scrimmages, we would play different things. And so when we got to a game, we wouldn't freak out. Because we feel like we know enough, we got this. And that builds our resilience, right? Another thing that builds a student's resilience, and I wanna put this out here, is this idea of connection and relationship and positive interactions. So there's this thing, and, and it's it, again, it's uh, taking it from Dr. Bruce Perry's, where it says that the number of positive interactions that an individual has or a student has or a kid has as they start their day with an adult can dictate the type of day that they have. So the more times that they have a positive interaction, the more hopeful they are about their life, right? And so if somewhere along the way, someone can give them an authentic smile, ask them an authentic question, it increases their positive interactions and that builds their resilience. Karen talked about that one positive interaction in 10th grade built her resilience enough to completely change her life. And so our mindset has to be, how am I being intentional about making sure that when I interact with someone, it's a positive one? Because that'll cause me to build resilience versus when it's a negative one. Like, I remember I had a teacher who said, Courtney, you can't write. And so it took me forever to want to write something. And somehow I got through a dissertation. 
but it sensitizes me. It makes you vulnerable. It makes you want to stop. So how do we not feed that, right? And how do we recognize that when people come to us, that some people are in a learning mindset and they're ready and they're good to go. But a lot of people, because of chronically holding this unknown, they're in a threat-based mindset. Fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And I think we've seen it. You immediately say something, somebody's ready to fight you. Or they just don't want to talk about it. You're like, wait, you act like I just didn't say anything. Or there's a freeze. Or I don't know about you all. You've been in stuff and you agreed to something. And then you're like, what did I just agree to? And it's very surface level engagement. And so what we're seeing more is people coming to us activated, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. But we're trying, and I tell anyone, so how do we begin to address that and deal with them in that space versus immediately trying to teach them something, right? So what I want you all to do is I want you to tell me on this scale, tell me where you think the majority of kids, students are. Where are kids and students? And then I want you to reflect and we're going to think about where do you think your colleagues and staff are right now? Thank you for listening to the activity for part one. So right now we would like you to do the same thing and think about where the majority of students and staff are in your school or district. On a one to 10 scale, where zero is a learning mindset and 10 is a threat-based mindset. And so recognizing that this is where, where people are. They're not, they're not in the learning set. They're somewhere in the middle or they're shifted over to where red. So now when you tell me, where do you think the majority of your colleagues are? They're like eight, seven, eight, eight, seven, nine. <laughs> Sharon's like, can I say an 11, <laughs> a six, a seven, an eight? Y'all are like, look, we are in crisis, right? And so the bigger question becomes now, how can we support each other recognizing that that's where we are? And so with that in mind, and I'm sure you all have seen this, before, it's just a diagram about our core regulatory networks, right? And it starts at the bottom with our brainstem and it goes up to our cortex, which you also like lighten up, you know, when we're ready. And that's like creativity, the thinking, the values and the hope. But sometimes when we're in distress and we're in that red portion, we're kind of stuck with just trying to regulate our body, right? <laughs> so we're stuck in our brainstem. We're stuck at the base of the brainstem. And so one of the things that's important is when we're stuck at the brainstem, I tell anyone this, when we're stuck at the brainstem, historically, how we try to communicate with kids and others. I use this example. I talk about my niece and I say, you know, my niece was acting up. She was doing something. I tried to tell her and reason with her, tell her, you cannot do this. This is why we're not going to do this. And she screams and she yells and she storms off um, and she closes the door. And so one of the things I realized is she was so dysregulated and in the bottom of her brainstem that I was actually trying to get her to use language and get to hope and start thinking about stuff and even using reward. And she just wasn't there. And so the best thing I could have done in the moment is just to acknowledge this is really hard. 
Let me give you a moment to deal with how hard that is. And so if you look at B, B is telling us the way that we deal with that and interact with kids and even adults is we have to first think about regulation. So how do we help you regulate? And then we get to the point where we say, you know what, now let me relate to you. Let me actually do something that causes a, a relative effect. And then let's get to reflect and reason, right? And so that we call that the four R's. And we always want to remind everyone, people can't reason with you if they're, if they're struggling to regulate themselves. They can't. And, 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 and a lot of times, if that regulation is really severe, they can't relate to you. They don't even hear what you're saying. And so we have to first meet people in their bodies before, especially during this season, before we can get up in their minds. And so how do we begin to meet them in their bodies and give them experiences so we can get to the reasoning and reflecting? And again, this diagram, I just want to say how important regulation is. As you can see, when you're calm and alert, that neocortex is lighting up. And you have access to 85% of it. When you're in flight, fights, freeze, or fawn, you only have access to 5%. And so this is why taking the time to think about regulation will really help us going forward as we begin to build resilience. Thank you for listening to part one of Courtney's presentation. Please continue to part two to learn more about regulation and resilience.